Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 134, Triumphing Over the Rulers. And in this episode, I would like us to continue our look at the gods and in the midst of the gods and how the Lord rules over the gods of the various nations, as well as the temptations that followers of Jesus find themselves in when it comes to living out kingdom realities in the midst of a fallen and broken world. And so what I'd like to do to begin our discussion in the New Testament is simply to start with Jesus. Some of the things that he says regarding the purpose of his entire ministry, and then we'll take a quick overview of some of the things that he faced um, while on earth as recorded for us in the Gospels. And then we'll end up in a passage in Paul from Colossians chapter 2, which I think will help us to get a little bit better of a framework for how this actually works itself out in our world. And I'll use a little bit of a biographical uh, sketch just to share kind of what I grew up hearing and believing and how my thoughts have shifted in the past several years and how I think that this new shift makes um, quite a bit more sense of the the world and and the reality in which we see and, and live every day. So without any more of an introduction, let's just jump right into triumphing over the rulers. To begin this week's episode, I would like to just look at the way Jesus begins his public ministry. And that's found for us in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue where the scriptures would have been read, and he stands up and he opens up the scroll, we're told, to the book of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah 61. And I just want to read for you the words as Luke records them for us in the Gospel of Luke, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 4. So Jesus stands up, he opens the scroll, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, again, that's Jesus quoting from Isaiah 61, 1-2. It says then that he closed the scroll, he sat back down, and all the eyes of those in the synagogue were fixed on him. Um, It's pretty profound uh, situation. He will actually say that, you know, today this scripture is, you know, fulfilled in your hearing. And of course, all of the people just <laughs> marveled at him, looked at him strangely, like, what do you mean today this is fulfilled? Like this was the long awaited promise of this justice of God when, when the Lord himself is going to rule over the world properly with justice, not the way, like Psalm 82 pointed out, that these fallen gods of the dispersed nations have failed to execute justice in the world, the Lord God is going to do it. And I'll give you a little bit of a background for me. Um, This passage is kind of new in my thinking regarding the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, I grew up, as many of you know, in a Baptist context, and that's no no, um, knock against Baptists. It just happened to be my context. And in the particular tradition that I was a part of, the epistles of Paul were pretty familiar to us, but the gospels weren't quite so much. And um, the Old Testament, maybe a little bit less. And so in the epistles, we, we, we read a lot about Paul and kind of brought into Paul our Western 
individualistic mindset regarding certain terms of sin and salvation. And so the fallenness in this world, it's mankind's fault. And if you want to find salvation in Jesus, you need to repent of your sins and receive Jesus's forgiveness. And th- that, that, those are true statements and those are true beliefs. But what that doesn't help us do, and it never helped me do, was make any sense of what Jesus did in large portions of the, the Gospels. Um, it didn't help me make any sense of Jesus healing people from disease. It didn't make any sense of Jesus casting demons out of people. And it made very little sense of Jesus's time spent with the poor and the ruckus that he created with the Pharisees. It just didn't help. It didn't really clarify a lot of those things for me. And so I may have shared this before, but when I first became an Anglican priest after having served in a Baptist setting, it's pretty common in liturgical type traditions to read a, an Old Testament narrative or a section, a psalm, a reading from the epistles in the New Testament, and then a reading from the gospels. And typically the priest or the rector or the pastor or whatever you call the person in my position will typically preach from the gospel. And it took me the better part of three years as a preacher, someone who has preached for over 10 It took me three full years to get comfortable preaching from the Gospels because the Gospels don't really fit neat and tidy into some of the systems and the beliefs and um, the doctrines, if you will, that I had concluded um, growing up, even going to seminary. And right here in Luke 4 is one of the biggest reasons. Um, Jesus doesn't talk a lot about right here about forgiveness of sins, and um, he looks at people and he puts them in categories. Um, he talks about the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Luke has plenty and will go on to have plenty to say in Jesus's own mouth about his words for the poor. But Jesus identifies here binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, for me, again, growing up in a certain theological context, I always was encouraged to read the book of Exodus and the actual Exodus from Egypt as this paradigm for salvation. And I think that that's a good paradigm. I think the Exodus itself was Israel's greatest paradigm for what their future deliverance will be. God will rescue the people and he will defeat their enemies. Well, the trouble with this is, is when you try to decide that the Exodus is the model for what salvation is going to look like, but you're operating on a grid which concludes that your own sin and selfishness is what separates you from God and therefore you need his forgiveness. And that's the totality of your understanding of the gospel. We have a very difficult time putting those two things together because I would not encourage anyone now to read the Exodus from Egypt as God's declaration that Israel is in bondage as a result of their own sin and wrongdoing and therefore need the Lord's forgiveness, that's actually not the picture of the Exodus at all. If you want a picture in the Old Testament of people receiving a second chance because they found themselves in a position as a result of their own wrongdoing, you're going to need to flip toward the end of the Old Testament and look at all of the promises and the activities surrounding the return from exile back to the promised land. The Lord has gone through the judgment of his own people in in the exile and has brought them back safely to their own land. That is the Lord extending forgiveness. 
and an opportunity for restoration and a new life as a result of your own wrong choices. The Exodus is not that place. And Jesus is not here speaking to people who primarily find themselves in life's difficult hardships as a result of their own wrongdoing. And this, I think, again, is why I'm so eager to talk about this now, because the the passage that quickly comes to mind, and I didn't even have this in my notes, but I think I need to point it out, is the statement that Jesus' disciples make to him in John chapter 9 when Jesus comes across a man who was born blind. The disciples actually operate under a little bit of this broken system way of viewing the world as well. And they say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, they're operating under the assumption bad things happen to people in life as a result of somebody's, it's somebody's fault. Like somebody did this. Who did it? The man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus says to his disciples, it was neither this man or his parents, but rather this is, this is the case so that the glory of God might be revealed in his life. Well, Jesus is now telling us that the spirit of the Lord God is upon him and he is here to, and he gives us a few options. He gives us a few examples of what he's come to do. Bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, I'm not going to claim for you that what I'm about to share is an exhaustive list of the kinds of people Jesus reaches out Two, um, I have not studied this exhaustively, okay? Um, there may be other interpretations of this which are better and far richer than what I'm going to give you, but I'm going to at least open up the possibility that there are some categories working here in tandem. If you think about Jesus saying, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives, that in my mind is a much better image of the Exodus than when someone says Israel is, is, in, is in captivity to Egypt as a result of their own sin. That is absolutely not true. Joseph, through his wisdom and the dreams that the Lord had given him, provided a way to save the known world at the time, and including his own people, from a certain famine which would have involved death for thousands of people. The Israelites then move into Egypt and are received well. But then there comes another Pharaoh at the beginning of Exodus who does not remember Joseph and what he had done for Egypt and sees the growing population of Israelites, is threatened by their existence because of his own desire to gain control of his empire and therefore the world. And so he enslaves Israel. He captures them, turning them into slaves And it's their cry for mercy and for saving out from under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh that catches the Lord's attention in Exodus chapter 2, and he remembers the covenant promise he made to Abraham. It's their cry for mercy under the hand of an oppressive force. Something outside them has stolen their freedom, taken their freedom from them, and made them captive to something. That's a category, if category is even the right word to describe people, which I'm sorry, it isn't, but that's what I'm, I'm just trying to get across. Jesus will deal with people who are captive and he will proclaim liberty to them. This does take different forms. It is very possible to be captive to your own sin and need forgiveness. That is absolutely true, but that does not help us understand everything that Jesus says and does in the gospels. Jesus will will approach many people, some of which are demon oppressed, and he never blames these people for the predicament in which they find themselves. 
He simply exercises the authority that he's been granted to him by his father, and he rebukes the demon, casts it out, and restores the person back to the place of freedom that they once had. This is a very different picture. He is attacking something other than human sin when he releases captives and sets them free. But he does also talk about the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And I sometimes tend to think, while this could mean various things, obviously Joseph was imprisoned, Jeremiah was imprisoned, there are several people. I mean, um, Peter in the New Testament is later imprisoned. Um, there are definitely people who, for doing what is actually right, are are there fought by punished by other people. And so Jesus is clearly dealing with that. But you might also think of our context today where sometimes people do go to prison as a result of their own wrongdoing. Like that is a possibility as well. I'm not saying that's precisely what Jesus means, but just because I don't think you can limit Jesus's work to dealing with people who have committed, you know, atrocities or sins or transgressions and thereby need his forgiveness, just because you can't limit Jesus's work to that does not mean that it doesn't also include that. And so I think that the prisoners, you could say, are those who are in bondage as a result of their own wrongdoing. Whereas a captive is someone who is, whose freedom has been taken by someone else. They're in bondage, but it's not their fault. They've been abused or hurt or mistreated or wounded or had their lives unfairly treated by someone else and they need set free. But then Jesus begins by saying that he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And I really think the brokenhearted could be the result of either captivity or imprisonment. You know, there are a lot of people today who when you want to put the chicken before the egg and decide, does your life look the way it does because of your own choices? Or does your life look the way it does because of the forces that have happened to you? And I think a truthful, honest, humble Christian response is probably yes. It's probably a mixture and as a result, people are brokenhearted. There's a mixture always. Do people have things done to them that are unfair and unjust? Yes. Do people commit sins of their own free will and of their own choice? Yes. Do sometimes the sins we commit lead us to further vulnerability and oppression by outside forces or other groups of people or other individuals? Yes. Does sometimes the unfair things that happen to us lead us and cause us down, to go down paths which then lead to more and more destructive choices which we ourselves participate in? Yes. So is it as simple as the disciples saying, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus is about to reveal and will go on to reveal all through the Gospels that there are constantly multiple factors at work in any type of reality. And it would be good for us to recognize that these things oftentimes go together. Captives, prisoners, it's the destructive nature of sin in the world. Sometimes things happen to us and then we react poorly in response. Or as one author used to put it, sinful people respond sinfully when they're sinned against. 
And yet sometimes it's completely understandable and it's completely natural to understand how it is that they've chosen to respond that way. And so Jesus doesn't often lead with pointing out people's sin unless they think that they themselves are beyond rebuke in that situation. Instead, Jesus is much quicker, certainly than his disciples were, and definitely quicker than the Pharisees were, to look for ways in which people are, have been victimized and are in positions of oppression, and then to take the time and the energy to deal with those issues to set those people free. Here's an example just of the way that I think this actually works. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's encouraging Timothy, who is a young pastor, to be kind to the people that he leads, able to teach them or teach a bull. I'm not sure which, which way you choose to interpret that, but patiently enduring evil and correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then in verse 25 and 26 of 2 Timothy 2, we read this, and you do all this, Timothy, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, I think if you look at this last phrase, and let me read it for you one more time. He says that they may come to their senses and escape by the, escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, let's take that one phrase, after being captured by him to do his will, right? So, captured by him, I think, is a fitting description of captives. Being in a place where you have been captured by the devil. But notice what Paul says, once they've been captured, they then do his will. Well, that's a prisoner. So, which is it? Are we to blame? Are we responsible for the things we have been involved in? Or is the devil actively at work in the world around us? Are we responsible for the choices we make individually or do the broken systems and structures around us in the world actually contribute to the brokenhearted nature of things? And I think the answer is yes. I'm going to admit to you on this podcast that I had a naive incomplete view of the way sin and brokenness and fallenness function in our world. And one of the big reasons why I wanted to point out to you that we have a mirror story of the fall happening at the cosmic level as recorded in Genesis 6. And the reason why I took three straight podcast episodes to explain this reality as it appears in the Old Testament was so that as Christians in the 21st century and in the modern West, who are very comfortable looking for human sources for the problems in our world. Jesus, Paul, Moses, the Old Testament, the New Testament want us to begin holding in tension the fact that there are spiritual forces at work and there are individuals who get caught up in those spiritual forces and then do, as a result, make individual choices that more line themselves up with the broken spiritual realities than they do with the God-ordained realities of justice, righteousness, and wholeness. And so once again, Paul, I think, does a great job of saying, after being captured by him, captives, to do his will, prisoners. And as a result, people are brokenhearted. So what does Paul say to do to them? He says, be kind to those that you lead. 
be teachable. Patiently endure evil, Timothy, and correct your opponents with gentleness. Know the kind of world you're in. If people around you have been captured by the devil to do his will, then your way of reaching them cannot at all be the way he has captured them. And the kinds of opponents, I I like that word opponents, the kind of opponents Paul's describing potentially have people who are arrogant, narcissistic, want to be proven right, shown to be better, don't like the ways of the cross, but rather fill their stomachs with images of power and prestige. And what does Paul say? You're never going to rescue these people. The Lord is never going to be able to do his work. These individuals are never going to come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil if you try to reach them through the same means that they are exemplifying to the world. So Paul calls Timothy once again to be kind, teachable, patiently endure evil, and correct his opponents with gentleness. Through that way, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. It doesn't mean it absolutely will happen, but that is the way that it will happen if it will happen. Now, I want to give you one other example because I think this one is helpful. And and is this passage from Colossians chapter 2 where I pulled the title for this particular episode. And it shows up in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And here's what Paul says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, I grew up hearing verses 13 and 14 of the passage I just read. I just read to you Colossians 2, 13 through 15. I grew up really comfortably hearing verses 13 and 14. Um, you know, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what a beautiful passage. I mean, I, I do remember images. I have memories of going to church camp and having on a Friday night a, a wooden cross set out by a campfire and had little slips of paper with small nails. And we were to write many of the sins that we had committed that we were ashamed of or didn't think God could forgive us. And we were invited to come up and nail those to a cross in a symbolic way, um, repeating or representing what it is that Jesus did. Um, Paul is telling us that Jesus set aside these legal demands that stood against us and nailed them to the cross, meaning the way the law is immovable and is a standard for God's desires of righteousness and holiness in the world, we've transgressed that law. And that law, by its very nature, condemns us. And so when Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to the cross, he was receiving all of that brokenness and condemnation willingly onto himself for our behalf so that we could be set free from the consequences and from the destruction of the choices that we had made. 
But as our camp leaders brought us into the light with, it was, we have to acknowledge that. We have to be willing to receive that forgiveness. And the only way to do that is to confess those things, to bring them out into the light. But what I never knew was what verse 15 goes right on to say in the very next verse. And that is that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, this was weird. I I was like, I don't know if I never read that verse or never thought much about that verse. But here we have in verse 14, we have the forgiving of our trespasses, which I think we could look at as the sins and the imprisonment. But we also have disarming the rulers and authorities, which I think goes back to this captive's idea of the outside influences. There's things done to us. There's captivity. Jesus deals with both. And Paul is explaining to us that Jesus deals with both. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Now, these rulers and authorities, as I shared several weeks ago on the podcast, it may involve some of the human rulers and the human authorities, but Paul will use these phrases, rulers, authorities, dominions, powers, and we'll get into a little bit more of that, particularly in the book of um, Ephesians. We'll talk a little bit about it as it shows up in the book of Romans um, and 1 Corinthians. But for now, just understand that when Paul talks about dominions and rulers and authorities and powers, especially with his words rulers and dominions, he's talking about geographical places. He's also talking about powers. And Paul actually says a lot about the powers of sin and death. You know, we oftentimes define that word as it's like an adjective, like the power of sin. Sin has power and it it has a control over your life. But Paul actually speaks of sin as a power, like the powers of sin and death. And these powers that are at work in the world, sin as a principle is a power. It's at work in the world. And the Lord Jesus himself disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Now, what in the world can that mean? Well, here's what I think it means. If Jesus cancels the record of debt that stood against us and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross, then when Jesus was on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Because in Rome, the number one way to discourage people in Rome from transgressing Rome and its ways was to shame them on the cross. It was to humiliate them publicly and scare the world or threaten the convicts themselves from ever transgressing Rome out of fear that they also would be shamed and humiliated on the cross. And what's beautiful about Jesus is that Jesus takes Rome's authority or Rome's power or this systematized spirit of power and um, we are we will force you to do what we want by, you know by threat of punishment. Jesus doesn't back down at all from his overwhelming love for the poor, his desire to bind up the brokenhearted, his proclaiming liberty to the captives or the opening of the prison to those who are bound to the point where Rome's threat did nothing to stifle Jesus's love and compassion all the way unto death. And so Jesus, according to Paul, triumphed over the rulers and authorities 
because their means of threat and shutting down Jesus's compassion and love could do nothing to stifle Jesus's compassion and love. And he shamed them. He showed the powers and the authorities and the rulers and the dominions that they actually are powerless to stop God's spread of his kingdom, to stop the spread of God's shalom, to stop the spread of the love of God for mankind made in his image. So even though Jesus was put on the cross, it did not stop Jesus's love from spreading. It actually was the greatest manifestation of the spreading love of God. And so Paul says that in that moment, Jesus triumphed over the rulers. But I think it's important to connect it to verse 14, which is the verse I grew up hearing. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul actually will go on later, particularly in Galatians, and then sometimes again in Romans, and talk about how the law itself the law that God himself gave to the world had been hijacked by the power of sin and death to make it such that people who looked at what God had actually said was good and right for the world used it not as an instrument to be compassionate and gracious and extend love and grace to those who weren't like you, but used it as an instrument to bring about death and exclusion And I'm better than you because I do a better job of keeping the law and self-righteousness and pride. And the powers themselves enslaved humanity, even using God's good gift of the law to dominate us and to prevent humans from flourishing with one another. Paul has a ton to say, and I'm upset, not upset is the wrong word, but It's disheartening to me to realize how little in the church we get this. We don't understand the dynamics that are at work taking a good thing in the world, a thing that is truly good and right, the law, and allowing people, giving people the idea that you can use the law and abuse the law in order to use and abuse people, which is the exact opposite reason for which the law was given. And so Paul is pointing out that when Jesus took this and set it aside, nailing it to the cross, he nailed it all to the cross. If I am not condemned based upon my failure to keep the law, praise be to God, then I am also not made right before God by my ability to keep the law. And if that's true, then I also lose this crazy idea that I am now doing God's work by judging other people who fail to keep the law. Because if I'm not made right in God's eyes by my keeping of the law, then I have absolutely no grounds by which to judge another person for his or her failure to keep the law. The idea, though, that in the church, and particularly in the evangelical conservative church in this country at least, which again is the only experience I have with the global church, We have a lot of undoing to do when it comes to thinking that our job in the world has been to publicly criticize those outside of our gatherings because of what we believe the word of God says people should and shouldn't be doing. We've made ourselves the judges, which James explicitly forbids, as does Jesus, as does Paul, 
and have decided that God is pleased when we do the job of enforcing his laws. I want to tell you, based on what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2, and based on the way that he chose to triumph over the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, we, as a church, are sometimes and are sometimes just as guilty of operating under the influence of the powers more so than we are operating under the influence of the Spirit. And that is concerning to me. It's concerning to me that our approach is oftentimes not what Paul encourages Timothy to be his approach. How many times have you heard people talk about the way we deal with issues in our society or the way we deal with issues between broken relationships and how many of us find ourselves being kind to those that we lead, teachable, patiently enduring evil, or correcting our opponents with gentleness. How much gentleness do you see in here in our world today coming from Christians? I only speak to Christians when I talk on my podcast this way because I do not believe that Paul or Jesus or James or John or anybody else was writing to anyone but those who claim to be God's covenant people. I don't think God has granted his people the prerogative to speak death into the lives of those who don't know him. Paul's laying it out for Timothy how you're supposed to do it. Gentleness, kindness, teachableness, and patiently enduring evil. Like most of us, if somebody, you know, patience, oh, I need to work on patience. We do it begrudgingly. And my gosh, if somebody dared do something actually evil to us, I mean, my, well, it's just all over. We just throw our hands up. This doesn't work. Being kind, that's stupid. That'll never happen. No, what we don't realize is that if that doesn't happen, then we are perfectly at home in the snare of the devil, having been captured by him ourselves to do his will. What Jesus is calling us to is something bigger. What Jesus is calling us to is to follow him. And Jesus very simply lays out the way that happens. Jesus sets it aside the law with its legal demands, nails it to the cross, and by doing so, disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And he is inviting his followers to become a community of believers who choose to recognize the powers, the authorities, the rulers, the spirits of this age that are at work in the world and to resist them the same way Jesus did. The same way Paul is encouraging Timothy to do. And the same way Paul himself actually did. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that in subsequent weeks. What does it mean to defeat the rulers? What does it mean to live as faithful people of God in a world where powers and authorities and gods are actively at work? What are those ways in which they work? And what is the way that following Jesus through the cross, how does it break through those forces? How does it manifest the love and grace of God in a fallen, broken world? Who and what are Christians actually supposed to be as a collective society in the midst of many, many other collective societies? How do we think 
about spiritual reality in our world as a community. That's what I want to talk about. I don't know how long it's going to take us to do it, but this is very, very, very important because I think far too often we reduce so many things to an individual choices, individual actions, and I want us to become aware more and more that there are spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Paul doesn't take the time to identify the names of these gods, if you will, by name. He doesn't try to identify where they're coming from, what we call them, what their hierarchy is. He doesn't care about any of that. Paul is tuned into the reality that there are constantly spiritual forces, powers, rulers, and authorities that have corrupted otherwise good intentions of mankind on the earth, good intentions even from God himself, and have captured humanity to do their will. And oftentimes the captivity that people find themselves in, they don't even know they're captive. But what did Jesus say he's come to do? He's come to proclaim liberty to the captives. Imagine what a challenge and a task it is in the church to attempt to proclaim liberty to people who don't even know that they are captive. I don't necessarily know at the beginning of this episode, I would have put it in quite these terms, but I would like to submit to you that in large part, that's what I believe a pastor's job is. I actually sense the calling on my own life to help those in my church and even those of you who listen to this podcast to help us all to see, please understand myself at the front of the list, the ways in which our normal belief systems, we are captive to them. And if Jesus is coming to proclaim liberty to the captives, the first thing we may need to see are the areas in which we are captives. It's hard. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not a fun thing to do. Sometimes you get frustrated. Sometimes I lose my cool and just get angry because I don't want to see here's another area where things in my life are going to have to radically change if I've been duped into believing something that simply isn't God's way. And if the powers themselves were creative enough to take the law of God and use it to allow the people to bring destruction and death instead of life and hope to the world, then there are no categories in our world where where the powers are not still at work to bring about destruction and death. They are attacking the church for that very reason, attempting to get the church to think that it's doing God's work by embodying ideologies, mentalities, and spirits that are antithetical to the cross and the ways of Jesus, the Messiah. I don't want that for any of you. I don't want that for any of your churches, but I can't turn a blind eye to the fact that there are masses and masses of people leaving the evangelical church today, giving up hope for them because they have seen abuses in the church. They have seen ways in which the church has grasped for power, political power, social power, racial power, and doesn't even know it. 
And the moment somebody speaks up and says, here's a way in which you're captive, sometimes the church members are the first to pick up a stone to stone that person. And we have to flee right back to Jesus's words of encouragement, although they don't always sound this way, that realize when all men speak well of you, remember that they did the same to the false prophets. When people persecute you, when they don't like what you're saying, take comfort. They didn't like what any of the prophets said either. And so I find ourselves in a unique position. I find the church in a position where we really need to be open to all of the conceivable ways in which these invisible powers, rulers, authorities, and dominions are at work in our world, where they have captured our hearts and our imaginations and our minds and our belief systems, and where they have even gotten a foothold into otherwise good, right, and true things that God himself has given, such as the law, such as Jesus, and have twisted them and manipulated them for unjust causes, and then have gripped Christians into thinking that we can act and live ways similarly to the way the world works, but because we're connected to Jesus, we get to do it in a way that makes us feel justified by it at the end of the day. And that is what I'm constantly trying to put a finger on. And it's hard to do. I'm, I might be rambling right now, and part of that is because in a world filled with invisible realities that are constantly fighting against us, it's hard to put a finger on it. And I think the principalities and powers is one of those areas. You, you can't quite touch it because the moment you try to define it too closely, it evaporates or you're saying, well, it's not exactly like this, but it's kind of like this. But all through the church's history, those powers and those rulers and those authorities, while defeated, are not completely dead. Paul tells us that the final enemy to be destroyed is death. The principle of death, the power of death is still at work in our world. It has been defeated, but Christians are called to walk in the way of the cross the same way Jesus did. That is how we triumph over the power of death. But if we go all the way back to the fourth century, when Constantine legalized Christianity, when we saw that, you know, in this sign you shall conquer and the, a sign of the cross appeared in the sky and so Rome just slapped a bunch of crosses on the front of their shields and on their swords and on their helmets and said, look, it's going to be this symbol that we're going to have the victory. And then they went and started slaughtering people in the name of Christ. That's the way the powers work. That's the way the authorities and the rulers manipulate otherwise good and right images, i.e. the image of a cross, and completely invert its meaning, but make Christians believe they're doing God's work despite the fact that they're doing the opposite. This is a crazy thing to consider, and we've talked about this on the podcast. This is more or less the gateway to understanding the whole book of Revelation, which is why I feel that it's such a debacle today when people try to talk about it, because we're captured by the worldly powers. We're captured by the rulers and authorities in the way that we think. And when we do that, we simply pick up our Bible. We are unaware of the ideologies to which we are captive. And then we read what John writes in Revelation without understanding the lens through which we should be seeing reality. And then we interpret it in all manner of dysfunctional ways. I won't repeat my talk of Revelation. We spent 
plenty of time doing that. And you can go back if you'd like and listen to some of those other episodes. I may reference some as we go. But in the weeks to come, I want us to take a dive into the New Testament. There are at least a dozen passages that I'd like to walk us through over several weeks. I don't know how long it will take, and and I'm not really concerned with that. What I'm concerned with is equipping the church to be the church, to be the unique people of God who embody what the person of Jesus would look like if he were a whole community of people. That's what I'm interested in. And that's what I hope you'll be interested in too. And so that's all the time we have for this week. Um, As I'm recording this, it is Ash Wednesday of 2022. And for some of you who attend churches where you will go and receive ashes on your forehead in the shape of a cross, um, I, I wish you well. And I wish you peace as we begin the Lenten season to receive the ashes as a reminder of our own mortality and as a reminder of what Jesus was willing to do in coming to be with us and dwell with us and then to mark us forever as his people. And I pray that on Ash Wednesday going forward that we will forever be marked as his people by way of the cross that we will recognize that it was through the cross that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by showing them their powerlessness, by showing them that we don't have to play by their rules or by their game, but that the way of the cross is the superior way of the kingdom that will bring about life, health, and flourishing for everyone and a kingdom that can never end. That's the hope of Lent. And it's a sober time. It's a somber time, but we're very thankful for it. And if you're part of a church tradition that celebrates Ash Wednesday and Lent, um, that is great. And if you're not, then, um, you know, maybe jump, jump, jump to a church where you can do that and, um, and participate with other believers in that way. I hope you have a fantastic week and I will talk to you next time.